Before we start the show, a reminder that the NPR One app is a great travel companion for your Thanksgiving week. Use it to keep up with our political reporting, discover new podcasts, and stream a customizable playlist of NPR stories. Find NPR One, that's O-N-E, on your app store now. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to round up some of this week's political news, since it's Thanksgiving week and this episode is a few days early. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics. I'm Scott Horsley, cranberry connoisseur. And And White House correspondent. (laughs) Come on. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. So I'm here in D.C. with Ron and Scott. And Asma, you are in Boston celebrating early, huh? I am, where it is much, much chillier. So hello from the tundra. It's also cold here now. That's nice. It feels like Thanksgiving. (laughs) It does. All right. A caveat that while we can't discuss every political story out there, there is much more of NPR's coverage to be found at NPR.org on your local public radio station and on the NPR One app. Our colleagues have been doing some incredible work covering the transition, and, and there's a lot of great stuff out there. Okay, um, we're going to cover some of Donald Trump's latest cabinet appointees today. But first, let's talk about his business entanglements. Uh, this week, there has just been like a flurry of reporting uh, by various news organizations. Uh, the Washington Post reported uh, that there are something like uh, more than 100 different business interests that Trump has in, in various countries overseas. Uh, the New York Times reported uh, that Trump had some Indian real estate developers over to Trump Tower while he was working on the transition, met with them. There was a photo that they posted on Twitter. The, the executives who are developing the Trump Towers there in India, one of multiple holdings Trump has in that country. Donald Trump has a sprawling business empire. He's got golf courses and hotels and condominiums that stretch from Miami to Manila to Mumbai. So he has a lot of business interests And that means there's a lot of potential for conflicts of interest. Just to give you one example, shortly after he was elected, Donald Trump met with Nigel Farage, the leader of the UK Independence Party. That was the Brexit guy. Leader of the Brexit campaign and a member of the European Parliament. And we're told that Trump urged Farage to work against an offshore wind farm. Now, is Donald Trump doing that as the president-elect of the United States? Or is he acting there as the owner of a Scottish golf course who doesn't want windmills blocking his coastal view? It's that blurring of the Oval Office and the Corner Office that raises the possibility of conflict. And we're going to see this over and over again in the months and years to come. So, so Scott, I guess my question is, as I've been reading some of these stories that are coming out about Donald Trump and his daughter Ivanka meeting with foreign uh, leaders and possibly mixing some business with politics, my question has consistently been, I mean, is this not legal? Or is it? Is there any criminal wrongdoing? Or is it just a matter of ethically it doesn't look good? It is, I think, the latter. Um, but remember, during the campaign... Donald Trump said he was going to distance himself from his business holdings. He was going to hand over control to his adult children, including Ivanka. But that has done nothing to insulate the president-elect, because right now Ivanka and her brothers are intimately associated with the White House transition. As you say, Ivanka sat in on a meeting with uh, the president-elect and Japan's prime minister. She also took part in a telephone call with the president of Argentina. And now even conservative news outlets have been urging uh, the president-elect to address this. So far, though, there has been very little effort on Trump's part to deal with what is at minimum a appearance problem. In fact, Trump defiantly tweeted out just last night, 
prior to the election, it was well known I have interest in properties all over the world. Only the crooked media make this a big deal. Exclamation point. Yes. <laughs> and so why is this important? And and why are, why are we talking about it now to answer Donald Trump's question? When when Donald Trump sits down, let's say, with the president of the Philippines, President Duterte, and by the way, isn't that going to be a colorful session when it happens? <laughs> the American people want to know, is Donald Trump acting as the commander in chief uh, responsible for, say, U.S. military assets in the Philippines? Or is he acting as Donald J. Trump of the Trump Organization, who's interested in developing a high-rise tower in Manila? And by the way, uh, Philippine President Duterte just named the developer of that high-rise tower as a special trade envoy to the United States. So there are lots of uh, you know potential conflicts here. As Osma says, there's not necessarily a legal prohibition here. There, there are conflict of interest laws that apply to other officials in government, but those don't apply to the president. There is a clause in the Constitution, the so-called emoluments clause, that Ooh, prohibits... the emoluments clause. Sounds like a, Explain, please. Sounds like a hand it lotion. It sounds like a hand lotion, It's not a word yeah. we get to use that often, so we're going to use it a lot in this podcast. <laughs> but, but it prohibits office holders from taking gifts from foreign governments without an okay from Congress. The thing is, it's pretty much up to Congress to enforce force that. And I don't necessarily think the GOP-controlled Congress is going to want to have that scrap with uh, President-elect Trump. Yeah, I mean, I saw one tweet from uh, a congressman, Justin Amash from Michigan, who's a Republican, questioning uh, Trump's business entanglements. But other than that, I mean, it's been crickets coming out of Congress. And, and Justin Amash, I think we should say, is a sort of Republican that once he has decided something is an issue, you can pretty much you can pretty much guess the leadership will not think so. <laughs> yes. Traditionally, presidents have tried to shield themselves from this kind of uh, at least appearance of conflict by putting their assets into something like a blind trust. Donald Trump has thumbed his nose at that kind of tradition, just as he thumbed his nose at the traditional expectation that candidates would release their tax returns. He hasn't paid a price for that, and until he pays a price for this, it's hard to imagine he's going to change course. And it's hard to imagine we're ever going to see those tax returns, too, because a lot of them would tell you far, far more about where his business interests lie and where those meetings that you were talking about, where the question would be, the question would be, is he dealing for the United States or is he dealing for Trump? Uh, the answer is probably going to be a little bit of both. And that doesn't seem to trouble Donald Trump. And as he said, Voters knew that I was a businessman. Voters knew I was all over the world. Voters didn't seem to mind. I certainly don't see why I should let the media push me around about this. Asma? And I guess my question about all of this is, okay, ethically it doesn't look good. I understand that. But is there really any stopping Donald Trump? Sure, the New York Times can run a front page story almost every week detailing different um, business uh, negotiations that could be uh, ethically troubling. But so long as there's no criminal wrongdoing, I guess my sort of big question is, does it matter? And, and do voters really care and pay attention to this? I mean, I was out talking to a bunch of voters last week. Nobody was talking about this as a concern. It almost fe feels very like high-minded elitist, right? Like, I feel like I'm hearing about this a lot from folks on the coast, but I don't know if a lot of folks are paying attention to and this. And that's absolutely the way that Trump associates are playing this. They're saying, look, he's a successful businessman. His kids are successful business people. That's what the American people voted for. That's right. And all of this is going to be true until it's not. The, the American people and people in general tend to pay no attention to things that don't concern them until they do. 
until so a moment comes that, along yeah. when something that Donald Trump does with one of his businesses in respect to some American policy looks as though he did something for his own benefit and not necessarily that of the country or and, perhaps and the at two odds, are in conflict. And at odds with and the country. And perhaps the two are in conflict. And when that happens, people will probably care across the board. It won't be limited just to people in the media or just to people who follow these kinds of things for a living. Does this affect... I don't know, the credibility of the United States? Does it affect the credibility of the president? Or is this really, as as Osma says, like just a, you know, a, a hand wringing that good government types do? I suspect I suspect that this does not trouble foreign governments or foreign business operators any more than the presence of Donald Trump in the Oval Office itself might trouble them. I don't think that anyone's going to be terribly surprised uh, among sophisticated people in foreign capitals and sophisticated foreign business people uh, that Donald Trump would take the attitude that he has been taking. And the reality is there just aren't a bunch of laws on the books that say that the president of the United States can't have business holdings overseas, that the president of there's no law that says the president of the United States must dissolve all of his business interests and put it in a blind trust. There's nothing that says that the president of the United States daughter can't sit in on a meeting with the prime minister of Japan. A lot of this is about tradition. And as in so many other ways, Donald Trump is an untraditional candidate. So I guess the the question I have is that You know, while we may have not seen a lot of presidents of the past kind of in the mold of Donald Trump, there are other places that have had this kind of model. I mean, I was talking to a friend the other week from Italy who mentioned Silvio Berlusconi and the idea that he was, you know, this media tycoon who uh, had his hands, you could say, in a lot of different business operations. You know, while this may be unique to to our American politics, do sort of international leaders of of other countries kind of have experience with, you know, a politician who has mixed business? This is what I meant by saying that foreign leaders and business people will not be shocked to see this kind of behavior at the top of a country's government structure, but they might be a little bit surprised to see it at the top of the American political structure. Mm. It has not been part of our tradition, not part of our custom, but again, They are no more going to be shocked by that than they are by the presence of Donald Trump in the Oval Office. We should say the Trump team has been offering assurances that there will be uh, a a White House counsel in place to police this sort of thing and that all requisite laws will be followed. But there are basically no laws. All laws will be followed insofar as there are any. Okay, let's move on to the latest information that we have about Trump's cabinet. Uh, We're recording this Tuesday afternoon, so you may know more by the time you listen to this podcast, depending on when you listen. But we know that Trump wants Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions to be the attorney general, retired General Michael Flynn to be the national security advisor, and Kansas Congressman Mike Pompeo to be the CIA director. Um, what can we say about these guys? Um, let's start with uh, Sessions, who has been nominated for attorney general. Well, as the others are, Jeff Sessions is clearly a hardliner, hardliner on such issues as immigration, on uh, voting rights, on a number of things that uh, have been associated with the most conservative elements, really, of the Republican Party. Now, we should remember Jeff Sessions was the only United States senator to endorse Donald Trump early on in the primary process. Some others came on board later on. Some never did. Some opposed him right to the end. And so Jeff Sessions is in line for something big. Jeff Sessions has a real reward coming. Plus, he fits. He fits what Donald Trump 
basically campaigned on. He represents the idea of make America great again, meaning take America back to when many of our social arrangements in the country were quite different from what they are today, and harking back to a notion of America that was predominantly Anglo-Saxon Protestant and that had a certain viewpoint on the world and a certain viewpoint on who belonged in this country. I'm old enough to remember when Jeff Sessions was nominated by Ronald Reagan to be a federal judge and was rejected by a Republican-controlled Senate uh, because of allegations of racism. And he acknowledged uh, telling a joke that he thought the Klan was okay until uh, he found out they smoked marijuana. Mm-hmm. I, there, there's 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 a lot of pushback on calling Jeff Sessions a racist, and there was back in 1986 when I was a staffer in the, in the Senate when the Republicans controlled the Senate at that time, and uh, the Judiciary Committee, including some of the Republicans on it, just were not that impressed with the relatively young at that time Alabama State Attorney General, and he'd had a lot of important positions in Alabama and was was seen as a rising star in their politics, and Ronald Reagan had appointed him. All of those things would have normally meant in those years, automatic, automatic confirmation. So it really stood out that these guys put up a little sign that said too far. They were just not impressed with him. So, of course, what did he do? He took the perfect revenge by stepping back into the Alabama politics, running for the United States Senate and getting elected to the United States Senate and becoming one of the 100, which is why, by the way, whatever reservations many of the Republican senators of today have about Jeff Sessions, he will be confirmed. Yeah, they're not saying too far now. They're actually saying mm. we will confirm Jeff Sessions. It, it seems highly unlikely that he will face a serious challenge, though certainly Democrats in the Senate there will be a hearing and those Democrats will make their points heard and, and, and their concerns about how he would be the person overseeing the Voting Rights Act. For and, and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And he would also, by the way, have a say in how the federal government interacts with all those states that have now liberalized their laws concerning marijuana. Michael Flynn, uh, national security advisor. Of course, that is a position that does not require Senate confirmation. Somewhat surprisingly. Some some people are surprised to hear that. And as national security advisor, Flynn would preside over the vast foreign policy bureaucracy at the White House. Uh, The national security advisor is, uh, in part, a management job. It's the person in charge of the funnel of information that comes to the president as he's making national security and foreign policy decisions. And he had been appointed by President Obama in 2012 to head the Defense Intelligence Agency. Some of the criticism that's been directed at General Flynn is while he was a very uh, well-respected intelligence officer, uh, he was fired from his uh, previous job for management shortcomings. So there have been some serious questions raised about his management skills, as well as some of his more inflammatory statements when it comes to Muslims. Uh, This is a man who has said fear of Muslims is rational. He has sounded uh, extremist alarms about the ostensible spread of Sharia law in this country. Uh, Again, all of these positions are very consistent with the man who's appointed him. And I have a quote here that that CNN has unearthed of Flynn saying, quote, this is Islamism. It's a vicious cancer inside the body of 1.7 billion people on this planet, and it has to be excised. And he will be not... um he, don't, he doesn't need to get through a confirmation. I mean, I just think that this is so interesting. I mean, yes, he's been with Donald Trump uh, for, for a long time, and he was a close advisor to Donald Trump. But it, it's also, to me, so fascinating because 
you know, as a national security advisor, he will undoubtedly be helping Donald Trump figure out how to navigate the the war with ISIS and um, a man who sort of sees um, Muslims saying that fear of them is rational, I think really does raise concerns for Muslims domestically as well as internationally as just sort of who will be guiding this policy. And the last two presidents have always gone to great lengths to distinguish between the battle against uh, Islamic extremists and the the 1.7 billion Muslims around the, the globe. Uh, General Flynn is less careful about drawing that distinction, as is the next guy who's going to be sitting in the Oval Office. Let's move on to uh Kansas Congressman Mike Pompeo, who is the nominee to be CIA director. Um, what, what do we know about him? Well, if you watch the Benghazi hearings. Uh, in, you know a lot about him. In the fall of 2015, which were in some people's minds the worst time for Hillary Clinton as she was raked over the coals by a huge bank of congressmen uh, for an entire day. For something 11 like eight, hours. 11 hours. 11, 11 hours. And, and that was, in some sense, uh, her worst moments in the campaign. In other people's minds, those were her best moments in the campaign because she acquitted herself quite well. She faced down the criticism from many of the congresspersons who were giving her a hard time. And none was giving her a harder time than Mike Pompeo. He really made his reputation uh, with a lot of people in television world, with his aggressive questioning of her and his refusal to accept her answers. He and Jim Jordan, who is the head of the Freedom Caucus, the, the people who make life difficult for Paul Ryan on the right, uh, were really the two guys who kept pressing, even after the rest of the investigation and the rest of the investigators were ready to quit, were ready to be satisfied, were really ready to move on. And in a very real sense, they have continued to do so. He was editor of the Harvard Law Review. First uh, in his class at West Point. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Um, he has credentials, absolutely. He's also close to uh, Mike Pence, the pre- vice president-elect, and a former member of the House. We should say, I mean, we are still in the early, early stages of rounding out the Trump cabinet and the Trump administration. Uh, and so we could get very different signals as time goes by. If, if, for example, Mitt Romney is picked as secretary of state, that would be a, a very different kind of appointment than these three. But if you take General Flynn and Congressman Pompeo and Senator Sessions, along with Steve Bannon as the chief strategist in the White House, you have four figures who will give liberals and even some centrists fits. These are hardliners that are very much in the mode of the candidate Donald Trump, as opposed to the president-elect Donald Trump, who said he wanted to be a president for all Americans. So guys, what I think is interesting about the picks we've had so far is that in many ways, they're not surprising, right? They're sort of completely in line with the Donald Trump that we met throughout the campaign season. But there have been a few other names that we have seen uh, that Donald Trump is meeting with. And Scott, you mentioned Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney is one of the most vocal critics of Donald Trump for months. And then we saw that he also met with Bernie Sanders supporter Tulsi Gabbard, the the congresswoman from Hawaii. Uh, and, And I find some of these unexpected meetings almost more interesting and fascinating because I don't understand them. Well, and so, uh, also, if you guys have any thoughts about them. <laughs> also, there's Michelle Ree, the the uh, former D.C. schools chief. Uh, yep. She came to the meeting with her husband, a, a Democratic mayor of Sacramento. And a basketball, former basketball player. Yes. Um, I think Tulsi, I think that is maybe a special case. She says that she went there uh, to talk about uh, Syria and not wanting intervention in Syria. I, Donald Trump um, has at times expressed concerns about intervention in Syria, at times not. He's 
he's been sort of a mixed bag on that. Some of these people, I don't think Tulsi Gabbard is one of them, but some of these people could ultimately be in his administration. Someone like a Michelle Rhee uh, is very into school choice uh, Mm -hmm. and charter schools. And that is something that Trump talked about a lot during the campaign. And his transition team has been saying that he wants to have a diverse cabinet, uh, that he does want to be a president for all people. And so some of this could be a show saying like, look, I'm talking to people that don't agree with me. And part of it could be that he really is trying to get somebody to join his administration who would send a signal. Well, Gabbard and Rhee are both, of course, Asian Americans. And then you have Ben Carson, who is no stranger. He was actually among the leading contenders for the Republican nomination one year ago before kind of going into a fast fade. And that seemed to have benefited Donald Trump a lot. But Ben Carson was out of consideration, took himself out of consideration for a cabinet post, then came back into consideration. And And uh, today, as we're recording this, uh, one of the latest things we've heard was that he was in and out of Trump Tower today and that they were talking about HUD. Donald Trump shared on Twitter. Housing and urban development. That's good old housing and urban development, which would not seem to speak to any of Ben Carson's world-renowned expertise, but on the other hand, would be a place for Ben Carson. So we're seeing... We're seeing an effort, at least in terms of the show side of this process, to be a little bit more diverse. So we're going to keep an eye on that, both on the golden elevator doors at Trump Tower, where many of these candidates are coming and going, and also on Donald Trump's Twitter feed, where he's been um, teasing about possible personnel announcements. Um, Two more quick things before we take a break. Um, There's been a lot of talk about a, a, quote, Muslim registry this week and the idea that members of Trump's team want to reinstate a program started after 9-11 to track immigrants from other countries. That program was the National Security Entry Exit Registration System. It was started uh, by President George W. Bush's Justice Department after the September 11th attacks. It was later abandoned in 2011 after it was deemed uh, redundant by the Department of Homeland Security. And of course, it had also been criticized by civil rights groups for unfairly targeting immigrants from Muslim majority nations. And what the program basically did is that it required people from countries deemed higher risk to undergo interrogations and fingerprinting upon entering the United States. Well, the Muslim registry, I guess, is sort of a shorthand for what has evolved from what started as Donald Trump's very impulsive call for a ban on all Muslim immigrants to the United States. He later uh, refined and revised that into what he called extreme vetting of people coming from countries with a history of terrorism. Uh, Kellyanne Conway was on All Things Considered this week, and that was what she said the Muslim registry referred to, was just an advanced form of vetting for uh, visitors to the United States from countries with a known history of terrorism. She didn't say whether that would include countries such as France, for example. but presumably uh, countries in the Middle East. Uh, And as you point out, we did have uh, something like this uh, in the days immediately after the 9-11 attacks, and it lasted for about a decade. And, you know, the the thing that I think is so interesting about the conversation right now that we're hearing, and I think part of it is because of how inflamed the rhetoric of the campaign season has been, that we're hearing it sort of in shorthand being described as a Muslim database registration. Um, Yeah, I mean, I acknowledge that that sounds like a a scary thing. But I think if we look at what he's saying, and maybe what's sort of getting lost in some of this rhetoric, is that 
this program did exist. You know, it existed after the the September 11th attacks. And I knew a guy in college uh, who had come from, uh, I think it was, he was born in Pakistan, grew up in Dubai, and he was, uh, he had to register with us in order to be a student. Um, you know, he went on to work and, and live in the United States. So I, I would say that what I find so interesting about this conversation now is sort of how the debate has changed around this program that was passed under George W. Bush really with not a lot of controversy at the time. And I understand it was right after 9-11. Maybe the country was in a different point. But to me, what is very fascinating is actually the debate that we as a country are having around this very program that existed once before. And before we go to a break, there are some quick headlines that we want to mention. One, just today, according to a story in The Washington Post, the Trump Foundation admitted in some new tax documents to violating tax law that uh, bars nonprofit leaders from using their charities to help themselves or their businesses. Um, This would be Donald Trump uh, using foundation money to settle a lawsuit and uh, also to buy giant portraits of himself. Are there any repercussions for the Trump Foundation admitting to violating that tax law? It's unclear exactly what those will be or whether this was the first in a step of trying to close that issue out with the IRS. I believe that there could be a fine. And more news. Uh, Today, Kellyanne Conway told MSNBC that Trump would not pursue an investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server as he wanted to help his defeated Democratic rival heal. This this strikes me as a bit of PR. Uh, The campaign for many months held open not only held open, but but aggressively promoted the prospect of her being prosecuted by a special prosecutor who would be appointed by the new attorney general once President Trump was in power. But he actually turned to her face to face in the second debate and told her this was what he was going to do. And that she would be in jail. Yes, and that she might very well be in jail. And we heard a lot about that throughout the campaign. At this point, even after he is president, It is not within the purview of the president to instruct either the Justice Department or the FBI director where to go with this investigation because it hasn't been officially closed. That's why uh, it was still going on. And James Comey talked about it before the election, much to the sorrow of the Democratic ticket. And it could not be just simply closed by Donald Trump or Kellyanne Conway simply saying that they'd like to have Hillary Clinton heal. Okay, and with that, it is time for a quick break. We will be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Simply Safe, an award winning home security company. Their system uses an arsenal of wireless sensors and has 24 7 professional monitoring. Plus, you pay by month and never get tricked into a long term contract. Simply Safe has no installation costs and no hidden fees, so you can protect your home and family the smart way. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get $200 off the Simply Safe Defender package only if you go to simplysafenpr.com. This podcast is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to capture your passion with a beautiful website. If there's an idea or project that you're itching to show the world, you should. With Squarespace's simple tools and captivating templates, showcasing your hard work is the easy part. Start your free trial today. Use offer code POLITICS at checkout to receive 10% off your first purchase. Okay, before we get back to the show, there's a new podcast here at NPR that I'm super excited about. It is called Radio Ambulante, and it's entirely in Spanish. If you can listen, you should. They are doing incredible original stories on the show, stories about punk rock in Cuba, stolen books in Colombia, junk bonds in Puerto Rico. 
The show is hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón. Radio Ambulante tells Latin American stories from the inside. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, back to the show. We're back to answer a few of your questions and a reminder to email us those or record a question and send it to nprpolitics at npr.org. Okay, first today from Robin, who asked about an off-the-record meeting Trump had with TV journalists this week. She writes, has any president-elect convened the media network luminaries for a group off-the-record meeting? And why do journalists agree to this? Love y'all. Scott? White House correspondent extraordinaire. From what we understand, Trump described this as a completely unprecedented sort of meeting. But in fact, uh, there's a lot of precedent for this. Uh, It's not unusual for uh, representatives of the TV networks, either on-air talent or the business folks, to sit down with a a president, or in this case, a president-elect, and uh, talk about how they're going to work together. Uh, It is a... um, by definition, the relationship between the news media and the president is a adversarial one, but there is some interdependence and some need to, to talk things out. Uh, I think what was unusual yesterday from what we hear is that Donald Trump used this as an opportunity to lambaste the media for the way they had covered his campaign. And uh, then that, even though it was an off-the-record session, that was promptly leaked out to some news media publications, and maybe that's all in the interest of Donald Trump. Uh, he, he used the media as a a foil throughout the campaign, and this suggests he's going to continue to use it as a foil going forward. And of course, we did that 60 Minutes interview, and there is certainly no paucity of Donald Trump in the media. We have his tweets, we have his many other communications in many other media. I don't think people feel that he's been underexposed in the past year to 15 months. At the same time, this is a curious relationship. We have seen people be media favorites in the past. We have seen people who the media clearly liked. What we haven't seen before that I can recall is someone who had such an extraordinary success at dominating the media coverage especially in the primary process, having rally after rally covered in its entirety when some of the other 16 Republican candidates were desperately trying to get even 30 seconds anywhere on the cable news shows. So that was pretty unusual. And then, of course, we had the adversarial relationship that he had all through the fall, including his failure to get a single newspaper of any note in the country, a single daily newspaper uh, outside of maybe one or two tabloids to endorse his candidacy when usually more papers endorsed the Republican nominee than the Democrat. He couldn't get hardly any newspapers to endorse him. It was adversarial throughout, and he himself felt that the media were prejudiced against him. But testy as that relationship has been, Donald Trump has been a goldmine for the broadcast media in particular. We've had TV executives who've said as much, saying it may be dreadful for America, but it's very good for our ratings and our bottom line. It's a really symbiotic relationship because, you know, Donald Trump, the former reality TV star, has always really loved, you know, television. And what was noteworthy about that meeting was just that it was a meeting with a number of television reporters and and executives, you know, as opposed to other uh, media outlets. And we should say that today, while we were taping, Donald Trump did meet with The New York Times with columnists and reporters from The Times, from The New York Times. uh, and, And that was mostly on the record, in contrast to the meeting the day before, which was off the record and widely leaked. Um, Well, thanks, Robin. Uh, And uh, the next question comes from Diane from Dayton, Ohio. She writes, hi, crew. Is there a precedent for a FLOTUS, that would be First Lady of the United States, staying full time in a private residence, 
is this a big deal? Thanks. And uh, Diane is talking about uh, reports this week confirmed by the Trump camp that Melania Trump will stay in New York City with the Trump's 10 year old son, Barron, until at least until he finishes his school year. Well, there was some talk when Barack Obama came into office that his two daughters, who were about Barron's age at the time, uh, might stay in Chicago uh, for the semester, the winter semester, and finish out their school year in Chicago before uh, joining their dad at the White House. As it turned out, uh, the whole family came east from Inauguration Day forward, including Michelle's mother, uh, the president's mother-in-law, who's been instrumental in also helping to care for Sasha and Malia. In modern times, I think this is unusual. But if you go back, I think uh, Harry Truman's wife didn't spend very much time in Washington. She mostly stayed home in Missouri. Uh, Ron, you go back further. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, God! (laughs) Thank you. I I believe that there were a few of the wives back in the 19th century who um, did not necessarily... Back no, no, when Ron was a wee that. lad. Let's not do that. <laughs> uh, you know, I was actually watching President Obama's first press conference as president-elect back in 2008. It was three days after he was elected. And one of the questions that the reporters asked him is about the schools for his daughter and what they were considering, whether they do public school or private school. He said Michelle was already looking into the schools. Uh, but, uh, of course, he, they ultimately chose to go to a private uh, Quaker school. I do think it's true that in the 20th century, and really in most everyone's general memory, uh, even mine, the uh, the president's family has been eager to make a show of moving into the White House. That is just part of the mutual embrace between the nation and the new president for his family, even if it's a relatively small family, children grown, there aren't many, many children to bring in. In fact, it's more typical for there not to be small children to be brought into the White House. It's just part of the show of the president and the nation being wed together to have his family at least nominally move into the White House. But we do expect Barron and Melania will relocate uh, once the school year is over, and I'm sure no one's going to be happier about that than the residents of Trump Tower who are now having to skirt the security barriers and all those reporters camped out in front of the gold elevators. But they'll be back, barriers and reporters, because the Trumps are certainly not going to be 365 in the White House or in Washington. All right. You know, uh, finally, we got a lot of questions this week about how to talk about politics this Thanksgiving. Believe it or not, this is our second pre-Thanksgiving episode, and we were talking about the same thing this time last year. So in the interest of nostalgia, we would like to play for you about a four-minute clip from that episode. Here's Sam Sanders with Sarah McCammon, Domenico Montanaro, and Asma Khalid. Uh, November 24th, 2015. <laughs> All week in NPR Politics, we have been collecting and giving out advice on how to avoid political arguments during the holidays. Stay so, home. St- what you say? Stay home. Stay home. <laughs> Sit at the kids' table. Um, what things have we heard? Well, one of the things I, th- I found kind of funny, we put a call out on our Facebook page on NPR Politics, which you should go like <laughs> right plug, now. Just plug. <laughs> You're like the candidates plugging their websites in the debates, man. You know I don't like that. NPR Politics Facebook. At least it's not a URL. Okay, continue. Anyway, so we put this call out on NPR Politics on our Facebook page, and we heard from some some people who actually read it and like it, so it's good. And one woman from Denver, Colorado, Sally Carlton, has some really good advice. She says, We have both liberal and ultra-conservatives in the family, so we decided to nip it in the bud. Discussion of politics and religion are out when we we are all together. My sister-in-law got a great duck quacker. Yellow plastic looks like a duck's bill and quacks when you blow in it. The instant someone forgets and launches into one of those subjects, we blow the quacker 
And it's oh over. That Brilliant. Would, that would get on my first and last nerve. Quack. That would annoy me more than the political I think we need a, I think we need a quacker <laughs> need a quack in here sound? for Sam. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think my family could use that. I'm not going to mention any names because I, I want my family to still be friends with me. But we, <laughs> I can relate, Sally, if you're listening to this, because I definitely have arch conservatives and arch liberals in my family as well. We have had... And, you know, everyone loves each other, but they disagree about a lot of things. And there's been a lot of trading of, of books in over the years. You know, here, just read this book and then you'll, like, oh, then you'll agree with me and understand. Like, Be educated. Uh, yes, yes. And, and, yeah. So what do you do, though? Well, one, my biggest piece of advice is actually, like, you have to prepare. So sorry, maybe this is too late. But, like, like prepare political talking like, points? No, prepare in the sense of, like, if a holiday <laughs> is coming, like, there should be a no politics zone for, like, a good, like, six weeks to two months prior to the oh. holidays. So we're probably we're Good past... luck with politically engaged people doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, know we're, I know we're past that. Yeah. But also, you know, it all follows, fails. Just talk about the kids. If you've got kids, and most families, if they're big enough, have some kids, and they are... The kids are annoying and dist- I have some and I love them, but they're annoying and <laughs> distracting. And this is a blessing. And what them. if you don't have kids? And if you don't have kids, uh, I would say pets. Like uh, dogs. Th- there's got to be something. Dogs, right? Yeah. Or yeah. sports. Yeah. I mean, sports. Yeah. Well, I I love to cook on Thanksgiving. I love to cook the Thanksgiving meal. Maybe part of that is that I don't have to engage with people on on this stuff. <laughs> but in the kitchen. but I love how I I just I love cooking. I like I like how it all turns out. And I think one of the best things that you can do and the best compliment that I'd gotten a couple years. Years ago, when I made uh, dinner for my family, was silence. Nobody talked. Everyone was eating. just eating that the food, good. and that that to me that shut down the conversation. <laughs> it, everybody was happy. That's that's the way to go. Make yeah. sure your food's good. I like this idea of having like a horn to blow or having a rule book. But the challenge for that, especially with WASP, is like then you first have to actually. Before you can institute such a policy, you have to have a conversation about the fact mm. that you need to have a policy, and you know, a lot of families like most folks know what don't wasps talk mean, about that. Wasps oh, sorry, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. I don't think that we're so big on having <laughs> so those confrontational here's, here's conversations. The, here's the problem, problem with uh, Italian Roman Catholics: the rules don't apply. You just have to. You just keep talking, and you talk louder and louder and louder and louder, and that's the only person who winds up talking. And you, you know, sometimes you wind up making the most noise just at the bottom level decibel. But man, I've, it gets loud. Yeah. I've been at some tables as a black Pentecostal where the conversation's <laughs> got heated for some reason, and someone just starts praying to shut everybody up. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it's even better when the prayer takes on a little bit of a. Uh-huh. Um, they're kind of talking at you with the prayer. Uh-huh. Oh, Dear Lord, Lord, help this heathen shut up. <laughs> Lord, please open their eyes. I, I'm sensing a lot of passive aggression with the books and with the oh, prayers. Yeah. That you're yeah. You know, I found wow. what I find is always foolproof. Start talking about gossip, gossiping mm. about folks at church or folks in the neighborhood, or like they're much easier targets than actual national political from one bad behavior, as my mama would say, to another bad. <laughs> but behavior. like, if there's one person who I am grateful whole... for Sam's gossip. <laughs> That's right. Gossip killed the savage beast. <laughs> oh, okay, that was Sam Domenico Asma Sarah from a year ago. So, guys, do we have any updates on this advice? Well, being as how there hasn't really been any kind of a political development in the last year, I, <laughs> I suppose we could just go with what we said a year ago. I uh, was was thinking back to uh, my teenage years when I was a terrible teenager and we did a lot of family therapy. If you have to talk about politics, which I don't really recommend, but if you find yourself talking about politics, I would recommend talk about your feelings, how it makes you feel. 
And don't talk about what a terrible person your relative is for voting for Hillary Clinton or voting for Donald Trump. So, you know, guys, I was in Vigo County, Indiana last week. This is this quintessential bellwether county. So it's full of registered Republicans and registered Democrats. And they're all, you know, neighbors and and friends and family. And so this came up a lot. Just, you know, talking to people, they would talk about how it's really hard to demonize the other side because the other side may be your your sister or in some cases even your wife or your husband. Um, But but I was in a coffee shop on one of the days working and I eavesdropped because, you know, sometimes you do that in coffee shops. Always. I (laughs) overheard these two women talking about how they were so nervous about what to do on Thanksgiving. And one woman said that she intends to just have a prayer at the very beginning and she will have a blessing in which it is decided that no politics will be discussed for the rest of the evening just so they can all have a peaceful meal. So there's always that option. <laughs> How do the prayers go? Like, please, God, give me the... The strength to keep your mouth shut about election 2016. That's it. Okay, so now we are on to the part of our show where we normally do a segment called Can't Let It Go, where we all share something that we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. This week, let's make it a special Thanksgiving edition of Can't Let It Go. Scott Horsley, what can you not let go of this Thanksgiving? Well, tomorrow is going to be the annual White House turkey pardon. I think this is a tradition that uh, President Obama will be happy to let go of after this year. And I know his daughter, Sasha and Malia, will be happy to let go of it. (laughs) We're all rolling our eyes. It's always a chance when the president gets to tell some silly jokes. A year ago, he said, I can't believe this is my seventh turkey pardon. Time flies, even if turkeys don't. (laughs) <laughs> and an awful lot of our uh, avian savvy listeners wrote in mm. to say uh, wild turkeys, in fact, can fly. It's only those overbred uh, broilers that are too fat to, to take to the skies. With their giant, giant breasts that weigh them down. But I did a little research, you know, and uh, the, the, of course, uh, the turkey industry has been giving turkeys to the White House for a very long time. And if you go back to 1921, there was a Warren G. Harding Club in Chicago that sent a turkey to then-President Warren G. Harding, and they sent the turkey by air, which was a novel form of transportation back then. They dressed the turkey up with a little uh, leather cap and a hand-knit <laughs> sweater that the, that the girls in the Warren G. Harding Club had made. The turkey was named Supreme Two, and the turkey got sick in flight, and they had to land and finish <laughs> the trip by train. And it just reminds me of the classic line from WKRP in Cincinnati. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> mm. Tough act to follow. So, tough, so Scott, can tough I act jump to follow. Scott, I want to jump in with my can't let it go uh, in the spirit of turkeys and flight. So uh, I mentioned that I'm uh, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, which is where my poor husband had been living by himself mostly during the campaign year. And uh, I saw a wild turkey in our backyard. And it does fly. I can attest to that. They hang out in your backyards. Sometimes they hang out in gangs. There were five of them in the street. I don't know what the... Oh, my God. Marauding turkeys in Cambridge. I don't know exactly. But, like, why do they hang out in gangs or flocks? Is that the correct word? Flocks, maybe? Probably flocks. And, um... They can fly. So it seemed because he was on the ledge of the fence and I was too terrified to go outside. So I just waited until he seemed to either fly or hop from fence to fence and eventually go away. Are these really wild turkeys or are these, uh, you know, domesticated, free range backyard turkeys that some. I think they're, someone at, least, in... I think they're at least extra legal. It's, it's, it's the Cambridge version of gang activity that they have in cities. Cambridge has flock activity. <laughs> All right, Ron, what can't you let go of? 
I'm going to indulge a little bit of sentimentality here and say it's really hard to let go of the campaign year that we've all had together because after Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to go quickly into the December season and the holidays and into preparations for the inauguration. And the election is maybe maybe we should all be grateful for this, but the election's going to fade. And this has been a tremendous, tremendous group of people we've had here covering this campaign on beyond anything we've ever had at NPR before. It's been an incredible privilege to be part of it. And I'm going to miss having all this time together with you. Aww. Aww. Bye now. So me. <laughs> As he walks off. And Tamara, I know that you have a, a thought as well. Yes. Um, and the thing I can't let go of is Gwen Ifill, who um, in her latest career iteration was the co-anchor of the PBS NewsHour, passed away last week from cancer. Um, and... I mean, she just did things that African-American women just didn't do um, and that women didn't do. And and I think she made it possible for, you know, a gal like me to be able to cover this campaign and, and be a White House correspondent without anybody like questioning the idea. And I think, Tam, she was always such a gracious woman. I never actually really met her, I would say, in, in Washington, D.C., but my very first um article that I wrote for the Indiana Daily Student when I was in college was actually an interview with Gwen. She was coming to speak on campus. And it was October of 2002, I believe. And, um, you know, I was a rookie reporter on the student newspaper. And they said, hey, call this lady. She's come to town. And she was up for doing interviews. And, um, And I always remember that interview because I just felt like she was extraordinarily gracious to a young budding journalist who had no clue what she was doing. Me. Yeah. Uh, my favorite Gwen moment is something that happened on the PBS NewsHour where I was a guest. And I uh, thought I was being really funny quoting Taylor Swift talking about politics. And Gwen said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> save that for the podcast. Yep, saving it for the podcast. All right, that's it for our show today. That's a wrap. A reminder that there is just too much news for us to talk about everything on the podcast. So if you want to hear more on a specific topic, keep up with our coverage at nprpolitics.org or email us at nprpolitics at npr.org. And you can support the podcast by going to npr.org slash stations. Find your local station and donate. Tell them we sent you. That helps make our work possible. We'll be back early next week. And until then, have a happy Thanksgiving. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics. I'm Scott Horsley. I cover turkeys and everything else at the White House. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 